You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Ted. Good morning, everyone. He is risen. Amen. It's good to be able to say that, right? It's a blessing to be with you this morning. It's a blessing to be able to remember and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who are with us here on Friday, we had an incredible time together uh, as seven from our midst reflected on the seven things that Christ said from the cross as he was dying for each one of us. And today, we will spend some time considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most of you realize that we have been working our way through the book of Job, and hopefully you have been reading along and been challenged as well as encouraged by what we have been seeing there. This morning, we are going to take a break from looking at Job together, and instead, we are going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because even though they are all describing the same incredible, glorious event, they all tell very different aspects, viewpoints, considerations of that. One of the most interesting to me is the Gospel of Mark. Because probably more than likely, the Gospel of Mark, as Mark himself penned it, ended at verse 8. Now, all of your English Bibles have a longer, a couple of longer versions to that. Those were probably actually added later, although we don't know that for sure. So the Gospel of Mark is the briefest. And it simply ends with the women wandering away from the empty tomb, wondering what the heck is going on. And to me, that's an incredibly provocative and engaging way to end Mark's account. But Ted read for us this morning one of the accounts from the Gospel of John, where Jesus appeared to the disciples as they were fishing. Matthew tells about the plot to try to cover up the resurrection and explain it in natural terms. And this morning, we are going to look at the Gospel of Luke who also contains a couple of accounts that are unique to his gospel. But let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us and to bless this time of reading his word and considering the incredible resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity that you have given us to be together this morning. And what a blessing it is to be in your presence, to be your people, and to be able to celebrate just how good you are and how you put your power and your glory and your goodness on display when your son Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we are here today because of you and because of that event. And what we really realize, Lord, is that everything else ultimately fades away. When we consider the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
There is really little else that compares, even comes close in importance or necessity. And so we are grateful to you for that, Lord. And we pray today that as we take a little bit of time to consider what Luke wrote about this incredible event, we pray, Lord, that it would be you who are speaking to each one of us. Father, each one of us sitting here this morning or joining online in our homes, Lord, you know each one of us. Nothing, nothing, nothing in our lives is hidden from you. You know us completely and thoroughly and intimately. And so right now, Lord, wherever we stand, there is no point in trying to fake it or pretend because you see everything about us anyways. So I pray now, right now, that each one of us would just honestly acknowledge that and lay our lives and lay our hearts open before you. And Father, we thank you that you know us that well. And Lord, more than that, we thank you that though you see everything that is wrong with us, you do not turn us away. But instead, Lord, you invite us to come even closer, to know you even more intimately and closely. And so we thank you for that. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each one of our hearts. Because more than anything else, you are what we need. And so we pray, Lord, that we would receive from you what you have for each one of us. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Well, I want to begin by reading in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to begin at verse 36 and read through verse 43. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. So the risen Christ was appearing to some of his followers. 
As we open this section of scripture, it said, and while they were still talking about this, well, what was it they were talking about? Well, earlier in Luke chapter 24, Luke gave us an amazing account of two of Jesus' followers who were walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And it says that they were very sad and very gloomy because of everything that had transpired in Jerusalem the last couple of days. And even though they didn't recognize him, Jesus himself started to walk with them. And he sort of jokingly, knowing full well what had happened, asked them, what is it that you guys are talking about? What is it that's happened in Jerusalem these last couple of days? And that's where Luke tells us they were so saddened by Jesus' question. But remember, they do not recognize who he is. Well, eventually they continue to have a conversation and Jesus spends some time with them doing a Bible study, and then they arrive at the town of Emmaus, and as Ted just reminded us, Jesus gets ready to host them in a meal, and he breaks the bread. And at the moment he broke the bread in the presence of these two followers, it says their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And against all hope, Jesus was alive. And at that moment, it says, he disappeared. Well, these two disciples didn't know what to make of this. And so having just spent the better part of the day walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they hurried back, I imagine jogging, maybe even sometimes running, back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what had happened. And this was the conversation that was taking place when Jesus himself appeared in verse 36. Well, they had been talking about what had been taking place in Jerusalem the last couple of days. And the four gospel authors go into great detail explaining what had been happening in Jerusalem. Remember last week, we had some palm branches and we were waving them. And we were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And about a week earlier, Jesus, riding on a donkey, entered Jerusalem to the exultant shouts of most of the city as they welcomed him as the king, the king who would overthrow Roman rule for the oppressed Jewish people, the king who would take up the throne of David and grant release and blessing and abundance that even Solomon's kingdom could not have rivaled. But then, as the week unfolded, things started to go a little sideways and things didn't really turn out as that crowd initially thought they would. And then on Thursday night, at one of the greatest moments of Jesus' need, he asked his closest friends, he asked his closest followers, just stay awake with me one hour, just one hour, even if it is 2 to 3 a.m. on the 26th of the month. Even if it is 5 to 6 a.m. on the 25th of the month. Just stay awake with me one hour. Because it was clear at that point, Jesus was in incredible anguish. And three times when Jesus returned from being off on his own praying, he found his closest followers having fallen asleep. Well, this was not a very good sign. And finally, on the third occasion, when Jesus woke them, he said, look, my betrayer is at hand. And there was one of the twelve, 
one of Jesus' closest friends, ready to betray him for the price of a slave. And Peter, in all of his zeal, said, I've got to do something to stop this. And the only thing that Peter understood at that point was the power of might, the power of the sword. And so he draws a sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, thinking, we've got to stop this. Everything is coming unraveled. Everything is coming apart. This is not how things were supposed to go. Jesus, you're not supposed to be betrayed. Jesus, you're not supposed to be arrested. Jesus, we're not supposed to be falling asleep on you. This is not how things are supposed to go. But Peter's efforts were futile, and they failed. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, put away your sword. And then at that moment when the disciples realized that there was no way they could humanly stop the arrest of Jesus, the Gospels tell us that they all ran away in fear, in dismay, and confusion. They all ran away. And through that night and into the morning, Jesus was put on trial, first by his own people, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and then by the Romans, with Pilate as governor sitting over it. And during the course of that night, a few individuals approached again one of his closest friends, one of his closest followers, and said, certainly you know him. Certainly I saw you with him. You have that Galilean dialect, that funny way of saying some of your words. And isn't Jesus a Galilean? You certainly were with him. And to the point of even calling down curses upon himself, Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And so things are going from bad to worse. It would be hard to write a more tragic, more awful scenario. But they do get worse. Because now that crowd that had heralded him as a king was shouting, crucify, crucify. We have no king but Caesar. And so Pontius Pilate, though he tried to make himself innocent, ultimately bent his will to the will of the people and said, fine, he can be crucified. And so Jesus went to that hill and died. And there again was dismay and confusion and loss. And everything had completely and totally come apart. And then to make matters worse, early on Sunday morning by our reckoning, some women had gone to the tomb and they found that someone had stolen the body. Really? the last and greatest offense of an offensive three and a half days. And so if you look at the descriptions that are given to us of how the disciples of Jesus were doing as this week and these last couple of days unfolded, you see phrases and words like they were at a complete loss. They were completely terrorized and afraid and doubting and confused and sad, and Jesus even says ignorant and foolish and slow of heart to believe. If you were trying to write a story of how to save the world, if you were trying to write an account of how to bring about 
salvation of fallen, broken, miserable humanity. Up to this point, you would have done exactly the opposite. Everything was going wrong. Everything was falling apart. Everything was completely and totally unraveling. And the disciples felt themselves helpless in any way to stop or slow this. And that's where the story left us. Until. Until. Until the risen Christ appears. And that changed everything. The most hopeless story becomes the most glorious victory. The saddest tragedy becomes the most joy-filled event in all of human history. That's the power of the resurrection. It isn't just one Sunday a month where some of us make a special effort to get to a church service, where some of us try to pick out clothes that are a little bit nicer than what we normally wear, where maybe we plan a, a meal that's a little bit more special or gather together with family that we wouldn't normally gather together with, what we know sometimes as Easter Sunday. You see, it's so much more than that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ literally changed everything. It is the absolute centerpiece of all of human history. And even those words are selling it short. Even those words are not fully capturing just how incredible the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is. It simply changed everything. Not a corner of God's universe is left untouched, unchanged, untransformed by the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're trying to grasp after. That's what we're trying to understand. And as one of the speakers on Friday said, all of eternity is not going to be enough time. All of eternity considering this incredible reversal, this completely changing, transforming of the darkest story to the most glorious story, all of eternity will not be enough time to fully grasp it. But praise God that he's invited us to start that wonderful adventure. And so right now, we can revel in the resurrection. Right now, we can continue to try to grasp just how glorious the living Christ is. And this morning in particular, I want us to consider just a couple of the infinite things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes for us. So let's continue to read. Let's pick it up now in verse 44. Jesus still in the midst of his somewhat amazed, somewhat startled, so filled with joy, unbelieving disciples. And he says 
in verse 44. And he said to them, this is what I told you. Jesus is the only one who has the right to say, I told you so. This is what I told you. But he's not doing it in, in, in arrogance and condemnation. He's doing it in, come on, guys. This is real. This is happening. I'm alive. I'm in your midst. And now you are going to see this was what I was telling you all along. So he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that he could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you the one that my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we're going to consider quickly three things. Remember, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And that is still not giving it the full glory. But we're going to consider three things in particular that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes the way we read the Bible. Now, this one takes a little work on our part because we're reading the Bible right now. We're reading the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke is telling us that the incredible resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how could it be changing that? Well, remember, when Jesus had risen, when the risen Christ was in the midst of his disciples, what was their Bible? Their Bible was what we commonly refer to as our Old Testament. Peter and Paul and James and John and Andrew, they would have never, ever, ever have called it the Old Testament because at that time that was all they had. And so sometimes they refer to it as the Tanakh. You may have heard that expression still used by Jews today. The Tanakh is a term that was given to their Bible, our 39 books, Absolutely the same as what you read in English when you start in Genesis and end in Malachi. Except, of course, they would have been reading it in Hebrew and Aramaic and sometimes in Greek. But sometimes they refer to that as the Tanakh. But it's the same books. It's the same Bible. It's the same scripture. But it's what we would call the Old Testament. Now, they divided it up into three different parts. When you study the Old Testament, we divide it up usually into five different parts. But their Bible, the way it was arranged, they divided it up into three different parts. And the first part was the Law of Moses, or the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books. Then the second section of their Bible was what was referred to as the Prophets. Only, surprisingly enough, the first book of the Prophets was actually Joshua and then Judges, and then King, or Samuel, and then Kings, and they were called the former prophets. 
And then came the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And then the final section of the Hebrew Bible, or what we call our Old Testament, was referred to as the writings. And that was basically everything that didn't fit in the Torah or in the former or latter prophets. So there you find Job, and there you find, surprisingly, Daniel, and Lamentations, and all of the other books of the Bible. Well, in Hebrew, Torah, prophets, Nevaim, writings, Ketuvim, Tanakh, Tanaka. That's sometimes why the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures are referred to as the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevaim, the writings, the Ketuvim. Now, if you're not grasping all of this, that's fine. I'm going over this very quickly because this is not the main point. But look more closely at what Jesus says in verse 44. He said, everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses. Well, the law of Moses, the first five books of your Bible. The prophets, the second section of your Bible. The former prophets, what we call the books of history, the latter prophets. But then look at the last one, the Psalms. Now it's interesting because this last section of the Hebrew Bible, which is usually referred to as the Ketuvim, the first book of the Ketuvim, the first book of the writings, is the book of Psalms. So what was Jesus saying really in verse 44? The entire Bible is about me. It's right there. The entire Bible is about me. We're reading the book of Job. What's the book of Job really about? It's really about Jesus. We're working through the book of Exodus. What's the book of Exodus really about? It's about Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ completely transforms the way we read the scriptures. And man, that Bible study that's described for us in verse 46, excuse me, verse 45, would have loved to have been part of that. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know what? Anytime is a good time for a Bible study. So let's just sit down and look at the scriptures. And so looking at Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, looking at the entirety of what we call the Old Testament, he gave them a glorious Bible study in which he made clear to them, in which he opened their minds. Sometimes we talk about someone blowing us away with what they showed us or dropping some knowledge on us. Well, that's what Jesus did that day times a million. And for the first time in their lives, the disciples were reading the scriptures in a way they had never read them before. Because Jesus was saying, it's all about me. It's all about me. When Peter was pe preaching the Pentecost sermon, oftentimes referred to as the first sermon of the church, when he was preaching the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what was his Bible? Did he refer to Mark? Did he refer to Matthew? Did he refer to Romans or Corinthians or Galatians? Well, Paul wasn't even saved yet. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ from what we call 
the Old Testament. And you know what? He had no problem doing it. What was Paul's Bible? Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. And he went throughout the Roman Empire effectively, persuasively preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what Luke tells us is actually contained within what we call the Old Testament, picking it up in verse 46. This is what is written. Written where? Written in our Old Testament. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. That incredibly glorious gospel message is found somewhere between Genesis and, for us, Malachi. Could you preach that message? Could you preach that gospel? Could you turn to Leviticus and preach Christ? Could you turn to Lamentations and preach Christ? Could you turn to First Chronicles and preach Christ? That's what Jesus was saying is possible, and not just possible, what should happen. Because Jesus is saying, it's all about me. It's always, always, always been all about me. And so now the disciples were ignorant and foolish and slow of heart to believe no more. The risen Christ was in their midst and the risen Christ was completely transforming how they read the scriptures. And that's why when you read the New Testament, every time that the Old Testament is being quoted, if it's being ripped out of context, it's being used in a way that doesn't strike you as correct, what's the one message that's being preached? Jesus Christ is Lord. Because they were there. They were there when the risen Christ opened their minds. They were there when the risen Christ had that incredible Bible study. They were there when the risen Christ said, Moses and the prophets and the writings, they're all about me. They're all about me. You will never read the Old Testament the same once you understand that it's all about Jesus. So that's one of the myriad of things that the risen Christ changes. The second one that I want to talk about, we find it in verse 49. Jesus says, I'm going to send you the one whom my Father has promised. I'm going to send you the one whom my Father has promised. So the second thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ completely transforms is our relationship with God. Our relationship with God has been completely transformed because Jesus Christ is alive. We've been looking on Wednesday nights at the book of Exodus, and many of you are familiar with different aspects of how God established the worship of himself in the Old Testament. A couple of concepts were absolutely central to how he was worshipped in the Old Testament. Holiness. God repeatedly, repeatedly revealed to his people, I am holy. And oftentimes in the very next breath, in one way or another, what he would say is, you are not. I am holy, 
you are not. I am perfect. I'm sinless. I'm blameless. I'm pure. I'm absolute light. I am holy. You are not. And if you approach me, I will consume you. If you approach me, my holiness will consume you. Your sin will absolutely destroy you in my presence. So one way of understanding the right and appropriate system of worship that God established in the Old Testament, it was a system of barriers. It was a system of blockades. Some of you can come this close, and a few of you can come this close, and one of you can come this close, but that's it. Most of the time when the people of God worshipped him before the coming of Christ, what they were encountering was hindrances and barriers. They could look at the curtain that surrounded the tabernacle, but they usually were not allowed in. And then they could look kind of through the opening to that other curtain tent inside, but then they could never go in. And even the Levites, they could kind of look inside of that, but unless you were a priest, you couldn't go any further than that. And the priest himself, the high priest himself, could only enter the Holy of Holies one day a year. The system that God established for how he was to be worshipped in the Old Testament was a system based on his holiness and our unholiness. And so it was a system of barriers. And that's why when we read the Old Testament, sometimes it seems very strange to us. Why? Because we're absolutely immersed in how completely and totally the risen Christ transformed our relationship with God. But one of the best ways to appreciate what you have is to realize what those who went before us did not have. Because one of the things that we as followers of Christ have the real danger of is taking for granted what we have. Friday night, a very powerful question was put before us. Do you thirst for the Lord? You see, I think when you really stop appreciating just how glorious what we have in Christ is, then you stop seeking him the way that you should. Just pick any calendar day. Let's not take Sunday. Let's take Monday to Saturday. Just kind of run through what you do on any calendar day. If someone were to look at your daily routine, would it look like someone who is thirsty for the Lord? Would it look like someone who truly appreciates what the risen Christ has done for them? Or would it look like you're kind of just taking it for granted, and yeah, I'll try to, try to get in my Bible study the last three minutes of the day if I can keep my eyes open, but I've got so much going on today. Well, one of the reasons why that happens is because we stop appreciating what we have in Christ. The risen Christ has completely transformed our relationship with God. And so Jesus says, look, the one that my father has promised, he's coming. 
and it's going to be good beyond your wildest dreams. Because the one that the Father is going to send in my name to you is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Son. He's going to come to you, and he's going to take up his residence in your heart. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, look, I'm going away, but... My Father and I are going to come to you and we're going to make our home in your heart. The eternal God is living inside of each one of us. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead. Many of us remember at that moment when Jesus breathed his last and died, that curtain in the temple, that last and the greatest of the barriers in the walls that a holy God had to construct to save an unholy people. Remember, it was torn apart. And the Father says, I'm here. Why are you running in so many other directions? I'm here. Unhindered access to me. Whenever you want, whenever you want. Why are you running in so many different directions? Don't you realize my son is alive and it has changed everything? It has changed everything. Our relationship with God has been completely and totally transformed. Now no longer is God off in a distance because we are plagued by our sin and unholiness. The Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit have now said, I'm taking up residence in your heart. Completely and totally transformed. How? Because Jesus Christ is alive. So the risen Christ has completely transformed the way we read the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular. The risen Christ has completely transformed our relationship with God. And the last thing that I want us to consider as we wind things down today is that the risen Christ is willing and wanting to transform you. The risen Christ is willing and wanting to transform you. Remember how the disciples are described as all of those tragic events unfolded just a few days before. They are confused. They are at a loss. They are dismayed. They are terrified. They are frightened. They are full of doubts. They are unbelieving. They are ignorant. They are foolish. All of those are words that Luke uses to describe the disciples before they understood that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But once he has risen, how are they described? Well, it says they were still unbelieving because they were so overwhelmed by their joy. The resurrection of Christ was simply too good to be true. 
That's how glorious it was. It said they were overwhelmed by their joy to the point where they say, I can't believe it. But now it's because they could not possibly conceptualize something this good had actually taken place. It says that they were overwhelmed with wonder, amazement, as the risen Christ said, look, touch me. Give me a piece of fish. I'm hungry. I know you think I'm a ghost, but does a ghost have flesh and bones like you see me standing before you? And to their unspeakable amazement in their presence, he ate a piece of broiled fish. And what they couldn't even possibly believe could take place was now standing in their presence. And what's the very first thing that Jesus had offered them when he appeared? He said, peace, peace. All of your fears, all of your doubts, all of your worries, all of your concerns, all of your anxieties, what is the only solution to all of those? It's the risen Christ. And it's the peace that only the risen Christ can offer. What's the solution to everything that is out of place in your life, to everything that is going wrong in your life? The doubts, the worries, the fear. What is the answer to all of this? It's the risen Christ. But when you encounter him, when you encounter Jesus, you are completely transformed. Look at how Luke ends his gospel for us. Picking it up in verse 50. It says, When he, Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at his temple, blessing or praising God. The disciples were transformed. The disciples were transformed. They were no longer afraid. They were no longer at a loss. They were no longer confused. They were no longer doubting, worried, terrified, ignorant, foolish, sad, gloomy. All of those things had fallen powerless to the ground. Why? Because they had met the risen Christ. And now they were overwhelmed with peace. They were overwhelmed with joy. They were full of worship. They were full of hope. They were full of blessings directed to God and the Father and the Spirit who was coming. The disciples were completely transformed. And one of the greatest evidences of this is a prophetic word that Jesus spoke in verse 48. He says, you are my witnesses. Peter and John were not going to be hiding anymore. They were not going to be wondering what's coming next. They were going to be in the temple boldly preaching the risen Christ from our Old Testament. And they were going to be willing to be arrested and beaten and ridiculed and opposed 
at every turn, and they were not going to stop. They were going to be witnesses until the moment the Lord called them home. The risen Christ had completely transformed them. They were not the same people. They were not the ones who had fallen asleep in the garden. They were not the ones who had run away. They were not the ones who were fighting with swords. They were not the ones that had denied they knew him. They were not the ones that were completely at a loss and hopeless. They were completely transformed because Jesus Christ rose. And for each one of you, and myself as well, here stands the risen Christ. Here stands the risen Christ. And he says, come to me, and I will change you. Come to me, and you'll never be the same. You will never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we are reflecting on this incredible event, I think there's part of us that is saying, how could something so good be true? And like those disciples who encountered you, we are absolutely amazed in wonder and worship and praise. That what seemed so completely hopeless was totally transformed into the most glorious event in human history. And we thank you so much, Father, that the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, has changed everything. And Father, I pray that each one of us would allow you to change everything for us. Lord, I don't know why some of us are holding back. I don't know why some of us are hesitating. I don't know why some of us are letting so much stand between you and us. But Father, I know what you are declaring today is I'm here. Come to me. I'm here. And I know that you are willing to completely and totally transform us. Thank you for this glorious victory. Thank you for this incredible, incredible resurrection that has changed everything for the entire universe and for each one of us as well. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.